0: So we're going to jump back into Matthew, and uh, we're in chapter number six this week. So if you will turn there in your scripture, Matthew chapter number six, normally we'd have this on the screen for you, but feel free to turn and follow along. I hope that you will. And uh, I'm going to read verses one through six, and that's where we'll be today. Matthew six, beginning in verse number one. It says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Lord, bless this scripture that we've read. Bless our understanding. Help us to, to see clearly. Give us, the uh, Holy Spirit, your illumination that we might know um, what we are to know from this about you, O oh Lord, and about us and about what we are to do with it, Lord. Uh, give, us, give us clarity of thought. Free us from distractions, including myself, Lord. You know, even in this moment, what I need. And give us a great time together searching your word. We pray that you'll receive all the glory In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we're officially one-third of the way through the Sermon on the Mount, at least uh, in terms of chapter length. And uh, I've enjoyed hearing from some of you over the last uh, few weeks and months about how God has been working in your heart and in your mind and in your understanding through our study in these passages. Um, I would say that probably for me, the most significant thing about our journey so far Matthew has been to see just how intricately woven and interconnected the Old and New Testament scriptures are. Truly, our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His word and his promises stand, and the same God we see who created all things, called his people out, led them through many challenges in their land, saw them through times of of exile and turmoil. It's the same God who speaks here In the New Testament as well, we've been seeing that clearly. Jesus' teaching in this section has been incredibly practical in nature. For instance, Matthew 5 was full of blessings and examples of true righteousness. And the amazing thing about Jesus' teaching in that regard is he's not simply speaking as a man who who presumes that these are good things, or even from experience says that they're good things, but Really, as the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead who made and designed all these things and knows that they are good because he has declared them good, that's who's telling us that these ways and these truths are blessed. So when Jesus says that the poor in spirit or the mourners or the merciful, the pure in heart, the persecuted, uh, those that hunger for righteousness are blessed, it's true because he's both the designer and the giver, Of that blessing. And when Jesus gives us examples of of true righteousness, examples like we saw in the one concerning murder or the one concerning adultery or divorce or oaths or any of these things, he gives those examples knowing that in following them, there is a blessedness and peace that can only come from following the ways of the one who designed and made the world. So when we say that these teachings are very practical, it's not simply to say that they are things that we can put to work or put to practice. It's to say that these teachings are life-changing and really world-changing. After all, that's what we're called to be. In Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16, we read these words, you are the salt of the earth. and light in the world, agents of preservation, agents of change, agents of truth, truth that we've received from the Lord himself. And this ties, of course, directly into our passage today. As we walk through the next two chapters in Matthew, we'll continue to see this kind of practical teaching. And so far, you've you've heard me say many times, perhaps to the point that you're sick of it, that our righteousness must be more than skin Deep. I think that's one of the major points that Jesus has been driving home in this sermon. Our righteousness must be more than just superficial on the surface, more than just outward or pretentious. Now, that's not to say that our righteousness must not be outward in any sense. Yesterday at the men's breakfast, if you were there, uh, Frank led a study from the book of Philippians. I had Scott read that passage earlier in our service because it ties in very well here. Because of who Christ is, how he, he came from heaven above and emptied himself, took on the servant's form, humbled himself even to the point of a criminal's death and is now exalted above all others so that every knee must bow Because of all that, Paul tells us to work out our salvation in fear and in trembling. That is, what is true within, because of the salvation that Jesus bought and delivered to us, because of that, it must have practical ramifications in our life. And Jesus is our prime example of what those ramifications look like. We must be a servant of God first and others as well. Our righteousness must work itself outward so that we can be salt and light, so that we can be agents of change and truth uh, by not simply believing the truth, but by practicing it as well. After all, you could easily make the argument that if, if you don't practice the truth that you claim to believe, you probably don't believe it. If I stand and preach with all my might and gusto that I believe these words of Jesus, but then if you look at my life and say, well, he doesn't do any of it, then I'm a hypocrite in the first degree. So we take that as a warning. A warning that, yes, we must be agents of change and we must be changing. Just like the final verse in chapter 5 tells us, you must be perfect. You must be mature as God your Father is mature." But directly after that warning, the first verse of chapter number 6, Jesus takes the warning to the other degree. After all, there are two ditches on every road, and it's just as bad to go into one of them as it is the other. In Matthew 6, verse 1 says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. In this case, we could say it's just as bad to go into the ditch of self-righteousness as it is to go into the ditch of no righteousness. We're going to dive into this passage and look at this principle, this warning, along with two examples that Jesus gives. But here's here's the main idea for the sermon. If you have your outline handout, uh, you can see it there as well. Christ's followers live for an audience of one. God desires and blesses true righteousness, but pretentious righteousness is comparatively worthless in his sight. So we'll see a principle and then two applications. There are more in this passage, but we won't get to them today. Uh, First, the principle, and that's this. Righteousness isn't a performance. Now, there's a way that the Sermon on the Mount sort of turns a corner here that goes right along with Jesus' warning that we just read. If, if you look down through the next two chapters, perhaps your Bible has headings that gives you an idea of the topics. Uh, a lot of the things that Jesus speaks about turn to things that are before God. Things like prayer, fasting, laying up treasure in heaven, not being anxious. These are all things that really, some of us, could hide our true self in from the rest of the world, but not God, not God. But really, even in the very practical things, like like not murdering and not committing adultery, still we see our primary audience is one, and that is God. Now, Jesus' words here get at a very basic question, and that is this, why do you do what you do? Why do you do what you do? That question is basic, but it's deep. It's existential. We can apply that question to anything, literally any activity, any thought, any attitude that we have. We can ask, why do I do what I do? Why do I think how I think? I remember being a boy and doing something silly or uh, enacting some half-baked idea and uh, being approached by my mom or my dad, probably my dad, and he would ask that question, why did you do that? And often as a boy in the nervousness and in that moment with not much clarity of thought, I would say something, well, well, well just because. Have you ever said something like that? And now all, all the English experts, my wife included, will tell you that you can't end the sentence with a conjunction with nothing to follow. Uh, but as an 8- or 10-year-old boy, the word because seemed to be a good enough reason you know, to avoid some kind of punishment. And maybe that's how we reason sometimes as we get older as well. We, we do things, and we don't necessarily want to wrestle with the reason why. Maybe it's because. Maybe it's a habit. Maybe it's we were taught to. Maybe it's, well, because I had to. Or maybe it's just, I don't know, seemed like the thing to do at the time. And we may not want to think about it many times, but there's always a because. There's always a because. And there's always a because in our righteousness as well. And in this verse, Jesus challenges us that our because ought never to be because we want to be seen by others. Now, again, Jesus doesn't say here that we're not to have outward, practical righteousness. We are to. Again, these teachings, they're to transform us. And they're to be transformative in the world around us. There's, there's great evidence that even in the first couple centuries, these teachings of Jesus took hold in the early church in a way that we probably could hardly comprehend. Uh, the early disciples literally turned the world upside down, the known world, with the spread of the gospel and the teachings of Christ. And even those who didn't bow the knee to Christ noticed the reality of the change that was taking place around them. As I was reading uh, last week, I came across this quote uh, from uh, a Greek philosopher, Aristides, and he said this about the Christians that he knew. They do not commit adultery nor fornication. They do not bear false witness. They do not deny a good deposit nor covet what is not theirs. They honor their father and mother, they do good to those who are their neighbors, they love one another, and from the widows they do not turn away their countenance. They rescue the orphan from him who does him violence, and he who gives to him who had not, without grudging. When one of their poor passes away from the world and any of them sees him, then he provides for his burial according to his ability. And if they hear that any of their number is imprisoned or oppressed for the name of their Messiah, all of them provide for his needs. And if it's possible that he may be delivered, they deliver him. If there is among them a man that is poor or needy, and they have not an abundance of necessities, they fast two or three days that they may supply the needy with their necessary food. That is the summary of an unbelieving man about the way that the Christians were living. For these people, it seemed like the practical righteousness of Jesus took hold. It was real for them, real and transformative. So Jesus is not telling us that our righteousness must not be real or outward in any sense. He's simply saying that we must not do it for the sake of being seen by others. My translation uh, uses the words, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. You could also say, for the purpose of. For the purpose of. Now, some have seen a contradiction with this verse and with Matthew 5:16, which we already read, but it says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. But if we look carefully, we see that the purpose statement in Matthew 5 lines up with what Jesus is saying here. Let your light so shine so that they may see, but it doesn't stop there, so that they may see and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Again, we live before an audience of one, and our actions are meant to point to that audience. Our lives as Christ's followers should be transparent in the sense that people should be able to see right through your righteousness and see behind those things the God who we serve and love. If our goal is a reputation, then that reputation will be our reward. That's what Jesus says. Then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Rather than the eternal and heavenly reward that that God may supply, we would have traded it for the earthly and temporary praises of man. That's why later when Paul's writing and he's writing about questions of Christian liberty and liberty of conscience, he says that there's freedom on some planes with what we do and what we don't do. But he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Even in those things, we live before an audience of one. So that's the principle. The principle is that our righteousness is not a performance. And then Jesus gives some applications, and we're going to look at two of those today. The first one is financial charity. Look at verses 2 through 4. Verse 2 says, Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Stop there for a second. One thing that we notice in, in these examples, both, both financial charity and also prayer and then later fasting, is that when Jesus introduces them, he, he doesn't say, if you pray or if you give to the needy or if you fast, he uses the word when. And I don't think he did that to be you know tongue-in-cheek kind of silly. I think he did that because the crowd he was speaking to, was already assumed to have been doing all these things on a regular basis. Fasting, prayer, and giving alms were just part of the regular lifestyle of the Jewish person in the first century. Now, he uses the word righteousness here, but one way we might think of that is by putting in there the word piety. Now, we don't say that a whole lot anymore, but it's still a word that floats around. Uh, piety is a word specifically for religious actions or religious deeds. You could say that, that prayer, fasting, and giving are religious piety, even though we might not call it that. Uh, that's a common term for it. So we could say Jesus is saying, beware of, of practicing your piety before others so that you might be seen by them. And then he gives some examples of pious actions. And again, these actions, these things are not wrong. They're, they're good. We'll see that they're even commanded. But Jesus didn't wonder if they were doing these things. His concern was, again, why? Why? And we might be coming at it from a different experience. None of us are, I believe, culturally or ethnically Jewish, but many of us have been Christians and churchgoers our whole lives it may be assumed of us that, as good Christians, we will pray, we will fast at times, we will give to the church and to the needy. And Jesus' concern for us would be the same question. Not if, necessarily, but why? Why? So, what about the first example, giving of alms? Again, giving to the needy is assumed by Jesus here. And we can go back to the law for that like we have with all the other examples Jesus has given. Um, We don't have time to give the full context, but in Deuteronomy 15, Moses is writing about a time when someone from the congregation of Israel should fall upon hard times, and he says, You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land, Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. That's a law that was on the books, so to speak, that these people would have been following. And it's a law about giving to the needy. But there's a principle from this law that crosses over into the New Testament as well, and it modifies it a little bit. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 and 7, Paul writes this. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That's the same idea. And again, it's assumed that we'll be giving something. Charity of all kinds reveal the heart of God who gives freely and abundantly to his creatures. The charity that God commanded in the Old Testament had caught fire in the early church as well. If you read through the book of Acts, you'll know that the church in Jerusalem particularly faced great poverty in those first days for many reasons. And uh, time won't permit a full sketch of what went on, but churches from around the region would send in to them, and in one of those cases... Paul is writing in 2 Corinthians to thank these Macedonian churches. And he says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that is given among the churches of Macedonia for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. What a testimony that Paul gives. And did you notice that phrase at the end of those verses? They gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. That goes directly back to Jesus' purpose in this teaching of asking this kind of question, why do we do what we do? The people that Paul were writing to, many of them were people who had only known these kind of ethics for a few years, perhaps. Before that, they had been fully immersed in Greek and Roman culture, but they were transformed in their thinking by Christ's teaching to the point that they gave miraculously, beyond their means to help their fellow believers, even ones that they had never met. They had given themselves first to the Lord and then to others. That, I think, sums up the idea of living before an audience of one. That is is living in light of God's true reward rather than the earthly reward of human praise. Again, Jesus says, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. The word there for hypocrite that Jesus used, uh, in the Greek, it literally meant a play actor or someone who put on masks. That is, someone who disguised their true self to take part in the role of theater. If we do religious deeds for the purpose of being seen by others, then we're no better, Jesus says, than actors on a stage, awaiting our applause after the scene has ended. Really, the praise of others is relatively easy to achieve, especially in the day and age where we live, where we have access to social media, things like Facebook and Twitter, you can find a group of people who will applaud you for whatever you want to do. It's not difficult. The praise of men is relatively easy to achieve. But it's horribly short-sighted, isn't it? And Jesus speaks that way. Truly, they have received their reward. When I was about seven or eight, or I think it was, I remember, I don't even remember what it was, but I had something in my mind that I wanted to purchase. And uh, my parents, we always had enough and more than enough, but we weren't wealthy. So if we wanted you know, extra things that were just totally unnecessary, they taught us to earn some money, save it and purchase it. So that's what I set out to do. And I remember one of the things that I did is I, I went to my uncle's house and I picked up his rotten apples and threw them over the bank and he, he, you know, we wagered a uh, an agreement where I would get so many cents per apple that I picked up. I think it was a penny or two. And I said, okay. And I had I had done the math in my head. I said I need to pick up this many apples in order to earn this thing that I want. And I worked at it for, you know, every afternoon for a number of days until finally I had saved up enough money to go out and buy the thing. Who knows what it was? It was. I don't remember. It was probably a video game or something. And I went to the store and I put my money on the counter and I got the thing and took it home and enjoyed it for a day or two. And then as a young boy often does, I got sick of that thing. And I remember thinking, all that work for this? Well, that's the idea here. Those who give their alms, practice their righteousness in order to be seen by others. They may receive the praise of men, and for a time it may be fulfilling. But there will come a point where you say, all that work for this? Jesus says, they have received their reward. There will be no greater disappointment for many and to realize that a life's work of piety was spent only to have the greatest reward left behind you. Christ's true righteousness compels us to give, to give our offerings, to give our gifts, to give to the needy cheerfully and willingly. But we do not do it to be seen by others, but rather to please God. Read verses 3 and 4. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. It's the human dilemma, isn't it? We we do some good deed, and in in our weakness we say, well, who's going to know about this? How will anybody know that I did this? Uh, we give a gift uh, we we donate to some cause we we build something we we do some great work and we wonder who is going to notice and if we ask that question we've really missed who's going to notice haven't we god will notice of course we can't really give with our left hand without our right hand knowing it it's 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 a metaphor for the fact that it's the audience around us isn't the important one it's it's the audience above the one who is before all things that's God himself quickly application number. And I say quickly here because we can only scratch the surface of prayer here uh, this morning. We're going to continue to look at this next Sunday as we jump into uh, the Lord's Prayer. That will be a a full sermon there. Um, But today, notice again, Jesus starts this in verse number 5, not and if you pray, but and when you pray. And again here, Jesus uses the word hypocrites or play actors. He points to a kind of prayer that uh, was a performance to be heard by men, not an act of reverence, not an act of worship, and not an act of approaching the throne of a holy God, as prayer truly is and ought to be. And I think if there's one basic truth that these couple verses teach us about prayer, it is this, prayer is to be offered to God, not for any other purpose. Now, that seems really simple, doesn't it? But I can tell you honestly, there have been prayers that I've prayed in which I had more of an eye to those who were listening around me than to the God who is sitting on his holy eternal throne. I think that's what Jesus is getting at here. None of us are innocent in this regard, but Jesus gives us the true and greater way. He says, when you pray... You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. By Jesus' day, there was a tradition, and there still is, um, to recite an afternoon prayer every day. It was usually just after the noon meal, and apparently it had become, we see this in Jesus' words here and some other writings as well, it had become common for some Jewish men to arrange their schedule so that they would be traveling by the busiest portion of the street corner when it was time to stop and give this afternoon prayer. And that gives a little color to what Jesus says here about not loving to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Prayer is not to be a display of our piety. It's it's not a way to show our theological knowledge. It's not a way to show our eloquence. It's not a way to better our reputation. It's a means of communicating and seeking and crying out to and thanking and praising God and God alone. Anything other than that is really no prayer at all. But again, prayer here was not the problem. The, The people were to pray, But the kind of prayer that was being given was not so much a prayer as a recital. The goal wasn't to approach God's throne, but to be enthroned on man's praises. He mentions the street corners. He mentions the synagogue. What about that? Well, there were public prayers in the synagogue, and it was an honor to be asked to pray publicly there. But think about it. The synagogue was a place where God was to be sought and worshipped. To to co-opt that as an opportunity to make a religious performance was to knowingly rob God of his rightful place as the focus and attention of those who were there. And instead of having this attitude, Jesus says, Go into your closet. Now that's the significance. Because whether we're in a crowd of a thousand or shut up in our closet. The audience of true prayer is the same. The only one who needs to hear it can hear it, whether we're in a crowded room or whether it's a silent prayer in the middle of the night. Now public prayer, of course, is not a sin, it's not wrong. Jesus isn't saying that public prayer is a sin. Uh, There are scores of public prayers that are recorded in the New Testament. Paul would often devote full paragraphs or, or more in his letters to writing down his prayer. And those live on as an inspired record of prayer to God. But again, Paul wasn't doing it publicly for the praise of men. His prayer flowed from his lips and from his pen because he lived before an audience of one. Now, of these pretentious prayers, that Jesus talks about he says again they have received their reward now that's that's a sad result isn't it because when we pray more often than not we're we're seeking something good uh, some good thing from the hand of God we're seeking some relief some answer we're seeking some remedy we're seeking uh, some kind of a blessing but when those prayers are offered up to be heard by others, then the reward for our prayer is just that. It's heard by others. Others who can't help us. Others who are in the same pickle that we are. Now, the concept of reward is it's a bit of a mystery, I'll admit. What exactly our rewards will look like in eternity is not totally clear. There are, there are mentions of crowns in Scripture, mentions of throwing them at, at Jesus' feet. Um, I remember hearing about that as as a kid and thinking, well, that doesn't sound very fun. I want to keep them. <laughs> Just being honest here, but and maybe they're real crowns. Maybe that's maybe it's a, a manner of speech. I I don't honestly know. Um, there's also the concept of that Jesus talks about of being greatest or least in the kingdom of heaven, and exactly what that means isn't abundantly clear either. But I think as we see the idea of reward in this passage, the word is repeated over and over again, I think the point of Jesus isn't to teach us what our rewards might be, but simply to show the vast and significant gulf between earthly human reward and the eternal heavenly reward that we receive from God. Something is interesting about this passage. In both of these examples that we read, uh, where Jesus says, truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. He says that in verse number two, again in verse number five. When he says it there, he uses one word uh, for the, the English word we have, reward. But if you look at verse number four and verse number six, where he says, and your father who sees in secret will reward you, he uses another kind of word. The first one, speaking of our rewards among men, we could say, it's really the word for wages. It's like a paycheck. But the second one, where God the Father will reward us, that's more along the lines of of a recompense, it's like this. Jesus is saying, "Those who live to perform before men, they get their payment. They get their paycheck it's in the notice of men. And it's as if they were doing a job. But those who live for God's glory don't work for a paycheck. They work for God himself, who promises to reward. It's it's the difference. This is a, a small Uh, illustration but it's the difference between going to work for a paycheck and doing something because you have a passion for it and we'll look again of course at prayer next week in depth but the principle for this week comes across clearly if our prayer is simply to be heard by others it's really no prayer at all and whatever we're doing whether we're praying or giving or later in this passage, for fasting, we must ask that simple question why? Why are we doing it? Are we doing it as a job to receive a paycheck, a paycheck of notice, a paycheck of familiarity, a paycheck of reputation? Or are we doing it as a passion to know, to love, to serve? to tell of our great God. Jesus will go on to tell about the emptiness of these kinds of prayer, and I think that emptiness applies to all kinds of religious deeds that are practiced for the purpose of being seen by men. Christ's followers live for an audience of one.